0: Please take your Bibles with me as we turn in the Word of God this morning to Matthew chapter 10. Let's turn in our copy of the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 10, and we're coming to this familiar passage of Scripture that we've been in for the last number of weeks. We have zeroed in the microscope, if you will, looking at the different apostles that are listed in verses 2 through 4, and that is where we've been for about the last month or so reacquainting ourselves with these disciples who Jesus commissioned and sent forth as apostles. But now we want to zoom back out and look at the passage as a whole again to remind ourselves what God is doing as we look this morning at verses 5 through 15. So join me there. Matthew chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. These 12, speaking of The list, in verses 2-4, through just mentioned these twelve disciples, apostles, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. For a worker is worthy of his his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that, for that city. This is God's word. So we look here in Matthew chapter 10. We're finding and reminding ourselves that Jesus' mission is already well-established by this point in Matthew's recording of Matthew's gospel. We've already looked at extensively how Matthew is laying a case that the king has come, he has come to his people. In chapter 3, we've already seen that his forerunner went before him, John the Baptist, preaching and announcing his arrival, preaching to the Jews, preaching to the king's people, that their king is here. In chapter 4, we see Jesus emerges on the scene and he picks up the message of John the Baptist, his forerunner, and he begins to preach the same message. He announces his central message, which is repent, chapter 4, verse 17, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we saw where he began the process of calling his first workers and disciples, and we've been looking at that culmination the last few weeks here in chapter 10, In chapters 5 through 8, we saw the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus takes time to sit down and to teach the disciples at large, the group of people who are following him around. It includes those who are generally interested, uh, interested for false reasons or less than good reasons, but it also includes core disciples like the apostles who Jesus calls to himself. And he gives the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, which describes his kingdom's character. This is what life within the kingdom looks like. This is what disciples look like. This is the fruit of disciples. If you say you are a disciple of the king, this is what your life looks like. That's what we saw in chapters 5 through 7. And then most recently, we've been in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, where Matthew has one goal, and that is to disciple us, to convince us that the king has power. The king has authoritative power. and This authoritative power is revealed. As we worked our way through Matthews chapter 8 and 9, we saw that this king has power, and it's not a, a form of power or a pseudo power, but it is truly God's power. We saw how this king named Jesus has power over the natural realm to speak to the natural elements of storms and seas and to speak the word, the Creator's word of power, and to cause them to cease. We saw that He had power not only over the natural realm, but also over the spiritual realm. We saw where He encountered those who were possessed by unclean spirits and by demons, and yet He exercised authority even over them. We saw where He had power over the physical realm, the power to heal the power to speak the word and the dead come to life and people are made whole. Power over the physical realm even to touch the hem of his garment was his power displayed in the realm of the physical. When We saw the woman with the issue of blood healed, for example. And then as I mentioned, we saw his power ultimately by raising the dead to life. No one, no one has displayed this kind of power That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords displays. Now, that sets us up for Matthew chapter 10, where where we are now, where we are moving forward to. And here in verses 5 through 15, we see that Jesus begins a second key teaching to his disciples of what you could say is ministry principles, ministry life, instructions for some of their first steps of ministry. We're going to find in this next extensive teaching, this is his second key teaching of five, that Jesus begins to instruct his disciples, that's why we've entitled today Instructions for a Successful Mission. Now what we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 15 is not comprehensively for us today in the sense of in the same way, but yet we can see principles for us. We will seek to derive out of the text here this morning. This is a key passage that is unique to his sending forth the now newly minted apostles. And these apostles are going to go forth in the name of Jesus. And what they're going to find is that this king has people who hate him. This king has opposition that is building slowly against him, against Jesus. We see here that there is a, a feeling to the text, a tone to the text. It's a reminder that Jesus only has a short window of time in his earthly ministry to train and to disciple his disciples. What we see here in this text is Jesus doing exactly that. This is the beginning process, if you will, of moving his apostles and his disciples from the sidelines of ministry, where up until this point, the focus has been on the king, his power. His power to heal, His power to raise the dead, His power to exercise demons, His power to calm the storm. And the disciples have been learning, watching, observing, and now they are moved to the forefront as Jesus begins to instruct them and to disciple them and to prepare them for the work of the ministry. First of all, this morning, I want you to note, beginning, go back with me to verse 1, The divine call. We would be remiss if we did not begin with just verse 1 again to refresh ourselves with it. But the divine call that Jesus gives to the disciples. Verse 1 says, And when he called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power. He gave them power. Now we need to make a connection here so that you understand the the fuller context. But I want us to think about this word called for a second. And church, if you've been studying the book of Jude with us, On Sunday evenings, we looked extensively at Jude's use of the word call. We broke it down in the sense of the general call and the salvific call, the specific call that is salvation. There's a general gospel call that goes forth, and then there's the specific call of salvation. But this call is different. This is the call to discipleship. This is the calling for service, you could say. This is that calling where many people have no problem assenting to and and recognizing that that God calls men to preach. That God calls people to the mission field. That God calls families to move. That God calls people to serve Him in specific ways. This is the call to service. And that's what we find in verse 1, the divine call. Now, to make sure we're bridging the gap to this process and how important it is, go with me back to verse 35. Because the context here is Jesus' broader vision. And it's been a long time since we've looked at it, so we'll move quickly. Verse 35 of chapter 9, going back just a few verses. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. And up until this point, the disciples have been watching. Jesus models for them what he's about to send them to do. Jesus went about teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what do we do about that, Jesus? Jesus here is, knows what his purposes are. And yet he's teaching. He's instructing. The work is great. There's my lost sheep of Israel. And there are few who will go forth and take the gospel to them. There are few who will go and tell them that the king is here. So Jesus knows that he's about to commission his disciples where we are today. We need to remember this background context. What does he call them to do? Verse 38. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And not to re-preach that message, but to remind you of a key point there. Before God often calls his people to a work, he burdens them with the work. He calls them to pray and to intercede for the work. Friends, are you praying and are you interceding for the gospel advance, as we did this morning, as we do privately and as we do corporately, and as we do, as we have a prayer sheet that is specifically, the guide is to help us to understand, just guide our prayer lives and our thoughts. When we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom, we will often find that where we are praying and where there is a focus, a call often follows. And it could be the reason that we're not called more often is we don't pray. See, God not only ordains the end, God ordains the means to the end. And Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, is the one who tells us to pray. So our conviction and confidence in the sovereignty of God is not an excuse to not pray. Here, the background is Jesus tells his disciples, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And now we come to verse 1 of chapter 10, then he calls them. And this calls not just to be his disciple, but he is calling them to send them out on a specific mission. Here we see Jesus calls the twelve to himself. This is a commissioning call. Here we see Jesus as the master trainer, the master disciple maker. He's simply the master period. And he calls these disciples to himself. We remind ourselves that a a disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, A disciple is teachable. A disciple is a steward. A disciple is obedient. In fact, you could say it like this. The New Testament knows nothing of a lifelong disobedient disciple. The New Testament knows nothing of those who say they're a disciple, and yet there is no evidence of discipleship. Here, Jesus calls these disciples to himself And he pours his heart into them, he pours his message into them, and he equips them for the work of the ministry. Again, the Scriptures know nothing of a disciple who is a true disciple who continues in a continual state of disobedience and not following the master's call. Oh, surely we have examples of disciples who err, of disciples who sin, sin grievously. But they, if they are true disciples, will show the fruit of repentance. And they will follow again, confess their sins. As the book of Proverbs says, the righteous man follows seven times, and yet he gets up again by God's grace. There's a lesson for us that we see here in verse 1, then moving back into verse 5, is that the call, the first call that Jesus gives is the call to be with Jesus. Now, Jesus is about, in verse 5, to send them forth in a commission. But before that, the call is to come and to be with him. There's a principle for us, and this is what it is. Before we serve Christ, we must abide in Christ. Before we go forth in His name, we are called to come and to commune, to hear from Him, to be instructed by Him. As we see these disciples are sent forth, it is with the equipping grace of God. Again, up until this point, they've been in the background. They've been silent. They've been watching. I was in a hospital this week I was seeing doctors, and I'm assuming this is who they were as I was just walking down the hall, I see doctors going in their robes, you know, they have that look, they've got the little lanyard, the little name tag pin, and I assumed the one that I think is the doctor. Nowadays you don't know, because they're younger than I am. That's when you know you're getting old, right? When every, all the professionals in your life are even younger than you are. You, you were the younger guy, and now, now everybody looks like they're in high school, right? So I think I know who the doctor was, I'm trying to be funny. Some of you look like you're offended already. (laughs) You see the doctor walking, but then you see two or three even younger guys walking with them. And the assumption that I made this week was there's the physician's assistant or there is the medical student who is simply trailing. He is the apprentice. But when he goes into that room, he's not talking. He's watching. He's learning. There is much for that medical student to learn. To observe, how to deliver good news, how to deliver bad news, how to be empathetic, how to show concern, how to treat this patient as if that was your mom, if that was your dad, how to be careful in your assessment of the, the test results. We see this in everyday realms of life, and this is what the disciples have been doing. They've been listening, hearing, talking with Christ, asking Him questions, praying with Him. But here, they are being prepared to go forth. Friends, it's a reminder for us that before we go forth in the name of Jesus, we need to learn to spend quiet time with Him, meditate with Him, To learn the mind of Christ. Again, before we work for Christ, we must learn to abide with Christ. And could it be that our ministries are not more, I hate to use this word, successful? Maybe the better word is fruitful. Because we're operating in the realm of the flesh. And not in the realm of the spirit. What we see in John 15, where Jesus gives kind of the key hallmark passage of abiding in Christ and bearing fruit and how this is the role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy in the qualifications for elders and deacons, let the man first also be tested. This is what we see Jesus doing with this core group of disciples. So what we find here is the divine call. Secondly, in verse 5, we see the divine commission that Jesus gives. The divine commission that Jesus gives. Verse 5 tells us, now these 12, Jesus Then sent out, and he commanded them. These twelve Jesus sent out. He called them to himself, verse 1. Verse 5, then he sends them out again. There's a lot in between the lines there. And then he gives them the command to go forth in his name. Here we find in our text that Jesus commissions them, but he gives them the authority that is needed for the mission. Notice when we go back to verse 1. This authority is described in detail. Verse 1 says, And he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. So the same power that Jesus modeled and displayed in chapters 8 through 9, power over the spiritual realm, he now invests that authority, divests that authority to his apostles who did not have that authority, but now they do. To go and cast out unclean spirits and to heal them of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. So Jesus equips them, he calls them. You know, it's often said that confidence, internal confidence comes from being prepared, being supported. We see both of those things here in the text. These disciples, these apostles, go forth in the name of Jesus because they've been prepared. Now You can never be prepared for everything. And oftentimes the reason we don't serve Jesus is we try to get at all the the possible scenarios. We want to master them before we'll share the gospel with our neighborhood we want to be ready for every, and every possible question that we could ever be asked. And then we'll feel confident and equipped to go. Now listen, that, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about being prepared. We have the power of the Holy Spirit given to us. We have the word of God to grow in and to know. That's what we mean when we say being prepared. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Know the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And you will be prepared. But here we also see they're supported. He commissions them. He sends them forth. They're able to go forth with confidence that they are the master's men. And they are fulfilling the master's will with the master's message. Here we find that Jesus is giving to them real-time oversight, real-time feedback, real-time live training. Now, why do they go forth? Why does Jesus commission them as we see here in verse 5? Their task here is to announce that the arrival of the kingdom is here. If the king is who he says he is, if the kingdom is what we think it is, and if it is all that the scripture says it is, then it, listen here, demands a response. It demands a response. The gospel demands a response. When the gospel is preached, It doesn't matter if you've ever heard it before. It demands a response. The gospel is a number of things. The gospel is an appeal. The gospel is a call. But most importantly, the gospel is a command. And again, going back to that message that the forerunner, John the Baptist, preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." That's a command. In chapter 4, when Jesus picked up that same message and said repent, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you feel like it. How different the preaching John the Baptist is and Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 7 at the end, we saw there where he stunned the crowds because he spoke as one having authority. How different the preaching of the apostles and of Christ than from the preaching we hear today. It's lacking authority. Biblical authority. Now, if the kingdom of God is what we think it is and what it claims to be, then these apostles are going forth to preach the call, to preach the verdict to the chosen people of God, the people of Israel, because it demands an appropriate response. This same authority that Jesus has displayed in chapters 8 and 9 is now given to the twelve. They are now able to go forth in the same way that Jesus did in all that they will accomplish all that they will preach, all the power that they will dis- display is ultimately, don't miss this, rooted in Jesus' authority. When we pray for our elected officials, we pray that they will be awakened to the fact that, yes, they have authority, but it's a delegated authority. That authority does not originate with them. That's what we call the definition of corruption. Corruption. Corrupted authority begins to give a godlike complex that says, I'm the all-seeing God, if you will. I have all authority. We see this in every realm of of life and social life and sports and politics and even in church life. We need to be reminded as we pray for others, as we see the pattern and example of the apostles here in the text, their authority is given to them own alone from Jesus the Son of God. All authority and everything that they're able to accomplish comes from Jesus, from His authority. In fact, He will say in Matthew chapter 28, all authority is given to me. In fact, just turn there briefly and I'm gonna ask that you mark it because we're gonna turn right back there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 28, in our next point, looking at the message that they are to give and to preach. Matthew chapter 28, just to nail this home, verse 18, Jesus came and he spoke to them, his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a summary statement of all the gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been displaying his authority. And at this point, when he says that commissioned command, he's announcing that he has power over death, hell, and the grave as well. The power to save the lost from their sins. So here we find that he gives this authority to the apostles. This is a stewardship that he gives to them. One that they will give an accounting for. And something we need to be reminded of is, some people speak of this apostolic age as if everyone, man, woman, and child, all the, all the time are performing miracles, signs, and wonders. And friends, that, that is not the case. This is a delegated authority. And one, one way that we could understand it is, is this is an authority that is under the discretion of Christ under the discretion of God the Father. Even in the ministry of Christ, he operated according to the will of the discretion of God the Father. There's plenty of passages where we see where Jesus chooses to heal or to exercise authority. He's ultimately able to say in John 17, I have perfectly fulfilled your will, O God. I have not acted in a way that is inconsistent with your will for my life. The apostles, particularly in the book of Acts specifically, if you remember the key passage where they say, silver and gold, we don't have. But what we have, we'll give to you. And what did they have? At that moment, they did not have some type of miraculous uh, sign gift or power to come up with money or something to give to the men that were asking for money. Basically. But they said, what we have, we'll give to you. What was that? That was the message, the message of Christ. Even the apostles' ministries were under the discretion of God the Father. They were not without abandon in the displaying of this divine power and authority. Friends, it's a reminder to us that even as we are disciples of Christ today, while this does not particularly break down as we think about being commissioned with power and authority in this way, it's a gentle reminder to us that disciples of every era will find their own authority by only submitting to Jesus and his word. The only authority that I have here this morning does not originate with me. The only authority our elders have here at Grace Church does not originate with us. The only authority we have is from the word of God. Shepherding the bride of Christ, which he has purchased with his own blood, feeding the sheep with the word. That's the authority. And we are simply the, the messenger boys. <laughs> we are simply the waiters. who It's our job to, to take the food of God's word, the authority of God's word, and to communicate to you what God has said. In the same way, we don't want a waiter tampering with the chef's arrangement of the food as if he has a better idea of how that should go or it needs more of this or it needs more of that. If we saw the waiter bringing us our food like that, we would probably get up and leave. So, whoa, 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 whoa in the same way many churches many pastors are tampering with the message they feel like they can change god's message the only authority we have is to deliver god's word as god has given it to us to his people 2 Timothy 3:16 the word of god is given to equip the church so that the man of god may be thoroughly equipped it is profitable for our learning and for our admonition so it's a reminder to us how God does it. He does it by His Word today. While we don't have the sign gifts, we have His Word. We have His Spirit. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the apostles were instructed to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of The earth. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do kingdom work, who leads us by His Spirit in conjunction and in consistency with the Word of God. This is the ministry of the Spirit of truth for the equipping of the body of Christ. What confidence we have, amen, in the Spirit of God, in the power of God to do the work of God. Another another way you could say it, we say it often here, but if we want to have God's blessing, church, We must do God's work, God's way, for his glory. As he spells it out in his word, following his spirit, being consistent with his word. And if he chooses to bless, all glory be to Christ. If he chooses not to show us physical, tangible blessing in our lifetimes, still, all glory be to Christ. That's his business. Our business is to be faithful to the message. Number three, we see not only their call, number one, their commission, number two. But number three, we see their course in verses five and six. Now, this is where it begins to get interesting. Verses five and six tell us that they have, in Jesus' design, a defined way and a place to go. There is places that Jesus does not want them to go. There are people that Jesus does not want them to deliver the message to. But then, there is a people... That he desires and commands them to take the message of the kingdom to. Jesus answers the question, well, where do we go? He tells them where to go. Verses 5 and 6. He says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather, instead of that, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Jesus commissions his disciples, he tells them, This is the exact places that I want you to go. Now you need to understand something, if you're, this sounds odd to you. Some of you may be thinking, I thought we're to take the gospel to every creature. I thought the gospel is for everyone. We'll try to clarify that just for a moment if we can. One book in my library that I had in seminary, and just, I've always loved the, the title, is by Graham Scroggie, and it's called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. And it's a book that covers, it's a massive book that covers from Genesis to Revelation, God's redemptive work through his people. So to use and borrow that title, in the unfolding drama of redemption, this is a unique time in salvation history or redemptive history. This is a short-term missions trip where God is, first of all, sending his messengers to his people. Now notice here, his people are the Jews. That's, That's the whole case Matthew is making. When Matthew introduces the king, he starts off with the lineage of that this Jesus is of the line of both Abraham and David. Which to the Jews was authentication that when the king, when the Messiah would come and when he is here, we will know his heritage. We will know that he is the promised one. And that is the aim that Matthew seeks to make. In Matthew 1.21, if you'll remember, it is announced to Mary that she shall call Her son's name, Jesus, for he has come to save his people, his people from their sins. That his people is is who we're talking about here. The people of Israel. The Hebrews. Now here we see the shepherding language, one of a shepherd and sheep. One of lostness. In fact, it echoes Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 6 where God speaks and he says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds, notice here, speaking of going back to our previous point, of not being faithful to the message. Faithful to the word of God for our application today. Their shepherds have led them astray. It's a comment that is made in Jeremiah 50 verse 6. When we fast forward to Matthew chapter 9, that's the language that Matthew's using here. Speaking that Jesus gives. Verse 36 of Matthew chapter 9, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary as sheep having no shepherd. First, the gospel, the redemptive news that the king has arrived, that the king is here, first goes to the people of Israel. When we look from Genesis to Revelation, the gospel, the good news has always been for all men. But God works through covenants and promises, and he chose to call a people to himself, for himself, by himself, for his own glory. And so we see the day in Genesis where he calls a man who doesn't know his spiritually, his right hand from his left named Abram. And he calls him because of his sovereign grace. What was special about Abraham? Nothing. Why was Abram uniquely the one chosen and called? Because of his own good pleasure. For his own glory. Out of the counsel of his own will. He drew Abraham to himself. He made a covenant promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, out of you, all the families of the nations of the earth will be blessed. He would give this gospel news, this promise of a Messiah that was given in Genesis chapter 3, more clearly defined to Abraham and to his seed. It was promised to Abraham that his seed would be more than the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Here's the point I'm trying to make. God chose a people to be the unique vehicle to deliver the message that the king is here to the nations. If you remember the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. So the advancement of the knowledge of himself was given to the Hebrew people. He says, out of all the peoples of the earth, you only, speaking of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, have I Loved. So God calls to Himself a a particular people, a covenant people who received the privileges and had their unique responsibility to carry the hope of a Messiah who would save His people from their sins. The problem is the King is here. The King has arrived and His people aren't even looking for Him. That's why John the Baptist was sent to herald, to break up the fallowed ground with the hammer of God's word, with the preaching as the seed would go forth. John the Baptist was just destroying spiritually in a sense, breaking up hearts, breaking up hard hearts, breaking up the ground so that the seed of the message of repentance and faith would come and bring salvation. Jesus picked up the same message. And now the apostles, as we'll see extending into Acts, begin to preach the same message. So the way that they responded to the news would reveal their spiritual condition because the kingdom of heaven deserves and demands a response. And God's people, his chosen people, have a hardened heart. The Jews first rejected the forerunner. They are in the process of rejecting the king. And eventually they will reject the apostles. These reasons... Of why Jesus sends his apostles to preach the gospel to his people. Again, they're theological, they're also practical, as was read in Romans chapter one, verse sixteen, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And notice the order that he has says there. We say it so often and we memorize it so often, you probably don't even think about it. But to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. Of course, there were those who were brought into the covenant of grace, those who were brought into the household of faith, who were not Jews. But his ministry primarily was to his people, announcing that the king was here. And as we see the continual teaching of the New Testament, Paul specifically will be called an apostle out of, in due time, and his specific ministry will begin to be that which is towards those who are Gentile. And to all of that this morning, the majority of us say, all glory be to Christ. We say amen, that the gospel is extended to us, that it's opened to us even here this morning. Quickly, number four, we see the charge that is given there in verse 7. Now this is the specific message of what he wants them to say and what he wants them to preach. Verse 7 says, and as you go... Now, I love that phrase. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And as you go, preach, herald. This is exactly what was said that Jesus did when Jesus went about all the cities teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now he commissions them to do the same. As you go, men, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here they pick up the same exact message. This is a heralding message. What what I'm trying to emphasize is is we don't get to reinvent church, friends. We'll see this extended all the way into the pastoral epistles. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? Timothy, preach the word in season. Be ready in season and out of season. There's going to be Sunday mornings you get up and you don't feel like it. Still, preach the word. Timothy, there's going to be days that your heart is about to burst and you're on cloud nine. Good. Then preach the word. It'll sound a little bit better on that Sunday. Whether you're down and out or whether you're up and out, preach the word. And this is what we do even today. Now in verse 7, we see that he calls them to go forth with a specific message. What are they to say? They are to preach the great commission. They are to announce that the king is here. and That they are to respond in repentance and faith. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now they... In this unique mission, are preaching in real-time present tense. Our message is a little bit different. So I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 28. In one sense, we can say, yes, the kingdom of heaven is here. We can say that, but we have a more completed version to preach. It's not only that the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's that the king has come. He was... He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the grave. And three days later, he showed forth his resurrection power over death, hell, and the grave. He's ascended now into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's coming again for his people. That's the more complete message that we have to give. At this point, their message was simply, the king is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So look to him and live. It's a kind of a present tense message. Ours is looking back at what God has done. In the Old Testament, I was talking about Abraham just a moment ago. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Wait a second. So Abraham wasn't in the present tense and he certainly is not where we are looking back. What did Abraham was looking forward for the promise of the Messiah. Here's the point. It's all of faith, friends. Faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ. Looking for the Messiah. Looking for the Redeemer. Here, they're preaching, He's here. Look to Him and live. And today, this morning, here at Grace Church in Rome County, in Kingston, Tennessee, we're saying, look to Christ and live, for He has come. The promised King has come. He did what He said He would do. He has fulfilled every promise in the Old Testament that prophesied of Him. Now, even more, we have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter says. Look to Him in faith. Repent of your sins. Turn to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and bow the knee to him. Commit your life to him and become an obedient disciple. Become a citizen of his kingdom. Now, in verse 7, he tells his disciples, he uses this phrase, as you go. Now we see the connection between this charge, this message, and what we find in Matthew chapter 28. Look with me there again. As Jesus came and spoke to them, verse 18 saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Whoa, whoa, this is different. Here in the text of Matthew chapter 10, only go to my people. Don't go to the Sumerians. Don't go to the Gentiles. But here, our calling today, this is where it's different for us. The commission that we are under is to go to all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now, this hour. We are making disciples in Grace Community Church. Right now in this hour, there is biblical counseling taking place. This is the greatest hour of counseling that happens in this church. It is right here. Because if we're fulfilling this faithfully, not only right now, at any time a man of God stands before the people with the word of God, he is, in a sense, teaching them All things whatsoever the Lord has commanded with the whole counsel of God's word, line upon line, precept upon precept, this is our calling, this is our commission. Now here's the connection between verse 7 of Matthew 10 and our text here this morning. The phrase, you don't see it as clearly, but it's in the original in verse 18 where he says, or excuse me, in verse 19, "'Go therefore and make disciples.'" In the original, that phrase goes like this, as you are going, just like it says in verse seven of chapter 10, as you go, he says, preach here. The phrase is also in the original, as you go, that means as you are living life, as you are going to work and as you are going to school and as you are shopping at the grocery store and as you are in your home, serving breakfast to your little ones, make disciples, In the sense of Matthew 10, 17, it's a specific calling and commission for a specific time to a specific people. And that's great. But our calling is comprehensive. Live your life with the calling, with the ambition that we are called to make disciples. We're not the apostles, but we are his disciples. And this great commission given at the conclusion of Matthew 28 right here to us is our charge as well. And friends, that's the mission of the church. What, what, is our, what is our driving focus? What is our motto? What is our mission? What is our phrase? Just look to Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19 and 20, because it has not been rescinded. We're to make disciples until the Lord either calls us home or comes in glory. We're under the same type of charge, not the same exact one and the same specifics, but it's more Full. and it's for us even today. Paul uses a language all throughout the pastoral epistles of being entrusted with. We don't have time to turn there. 2 Timothy 1.14, he tells Timothy, we've been entrusted with this word of truth, with this message of grace. This is a stewardship. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, again, using this word entrusted. And friends in church, I want to remind us, we have been entrusted with this gospel message. What are we doing with it? It's like seed in a bag. And going back to where we talked about God has ordained not only the end, but He's ordained the means to the end, God has ordained that the seed must be sown so that His people will hear it and respond in repentance and faith. And if you're disobedient, yes, listen, God's not limited to you. But what a joy and what a privilege it is to be obedient, to follow His pattern and His way, to follow in hope knowing that when we obey Christ, We're giving honor to him, doing his work, his way. We don't want to keep the seed in our bag. We want to sow, and when we sow, we will reap. And we're not to grow weary, but we're to continue in faith. Very quickly, number five, in verse eight, we see the distinct characteristics that were given to them. How are they to go? Going back to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to move quickly at this point because this is where it gets very unique and for them. There are principles here, no doubt about it. That we see that it is uh, very distinct in the, the different characteristics that were given to him. He tells them to not only give the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely, as you have received, freely give. So let's stop right there just, just for a quick second. Verse 8. This charge that they have, that they're called to go forth, and do was for one specific message. Notice the order of the message first, and then the, the signed gifts second. The, the message is to go forth, and how will the people believe the message? The apostles are endowed with power and authority to validate and authenticate the message. In John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, do you remember what he says? He says, we know this, no man can do the signs that you're, you are doing because they, unless he has come from God. In the same way, the apostles are endowed with these sign gifts and this power and this authority to authenticate the message. And they have what you could say a perishable expiration date on them. And as we're going to see later in the Gospel of Matthew, even in Jesus' own ministry, do not miss this, even in his own ministry, the signs and the gifts and the miracles, they all stop. There comes a point to where Jesus says, This is done. Now you need to listen to my authority and to my message. And guess what the people did? The people turn away and they leave in mass. They leave in mass. So the signed gifts were given for a purpose with an expiration date. The message comes first, and the specifics are given in verse 8. Now the reason he says, freely as you have received, freely give. Paul echoes this same question when he says, what do you have to take pride in, boasting in? What do you boast in? What do you have, and what do I have that we have not freely received from Christ? His sovereign stewardship to us. And the answer to that is absolutely nothing. Now, the background commentary says on this that many false prophets would go forth and charge exorbitant rates to try to relieve demon-possessed people and they would take money from people to serve them in the name, quote, of God. And yet, they were never able to deliver on the quality of the, quote, deliverance ministry. It's another point of emphasis that Jesus says here, don't be like them. You have freely been entrusted just now with this power Freely you have received, freely, graciously give. Seventh, we see here the deliberate choice uh, that is given in verses nine through eleven. He also tells them what not to do. And again, this does not apply to us because later in Luke's gospel, he then tells his disciples to do what he tells them here not to do. There's a couple of reasons for that. Let's read the text very quickly. In first, verse. in verses nine through eleven, he says. Provide neither gold nor silver. In other words, don't take up any savings or any any plans for this trip in your money belts. Don't even pack, verse 10, a travel bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. For a worker is worthy of his food. Paul echoes this. The pastoral epistle says, A laborer is worthy of his meat, of his hire. Verse 11, so now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. And then stay there till you go out from there. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is unusual instructions. I think it's safe to say that Jesus is sending these apostles on their first, quote, short-term mission trip which happens to be to their home neighborhood, by the way. There's a couple of things at play here. They're in familiar territory. They're not going to Indonesia. okay? They're going right down the road. They know these people. They have friends. They have family. But the main point that Jesus is saying is, Trust me. Trust me to provide for you. Later in Luke's gospel, he will ask them, Did you lack anything? And they say, No, Lord, we did not lack provision. There is much wisdom there for us. When God, God calls, He provides, doesn't it? If the calling is from God, when we go forth in His name, He will provide every aspect of what we, what we need. Now, notice the point He's trying to teach them is faith in God their Father. Remember going back to Matthew chapter 6 and 7. That doctrine of the fatherhood of God is brought in living before Him, walking in the fear of Him. And here, Jesus is reminding them that their Heavenly Father will provide for them just like He instructed them in the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Here, they're living that message. Here, they're growing as little babes in faith. They're, they're growing in the school of faith, and this is their first big mission. And they're going to go forward, not trusting in the arm of flesh which will fail them every time, but trusting in the power of God. Now notice verse 13. He says, If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Now later in, in verse 16, he's going to tell them to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, which is an unusual phrase. But he tells them to go forth preaching, following the signed gifts, and to have the discernment to know that those who show a responsiveness to the message to be willing to be cared for by them, provided for by them. And when they go to their house, as they provide shelter and a roof for them, to pronounce a blessing over the house, this verse 13 is, is a call for blessing. It's a call for wholeness. When the apostles come into those who would host them, they're to pray, what you would say, a prayer of blessing. A prayer of peace. This is an all-encompassing asking of God to do what only He can do upon this house because they are partnering in the work of the message of the kingdom. But then interestingly enough, verse 14, He says, But if you go into a house well, you realize they are hypocrites, they initially showed a responsiveness to the message, but they're hostile to the message. Or He doesn't go into a lot of detail, but the point is, verse 14, If you then find that They will not receive you, nor hear your words. When you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. This is a pattern, this is a tradition of the Jews that any time they would travel through Gentile territory, before they would come back into their hometown or country, they would symbolically stop and take off their sandals and clap their sandals together and, and brush the dust of the Gentiles off their feet. Paul will later say that when he would be moved or removed from a town that he would stop and dust, literally the, the dust off his feet because they rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a word for us here. There comes a time in our ministries where a hardened heart becomes evident and apparent and clear and bold to our, in our consciences as those who have the heart of Christ where we have to just turn them out to Satan as Paul uses in 1 Corinthians Chapter, I can't remember the chapter, but 1 Corinthians. The idea here is this. We don't keep casting our pearls before swine. If that household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Notice verse 15 as we prepare to close. The deliberate choice that is described here. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, then, for that city, again, who rejects the message of the kingdom. I want to conclude with, with two key points. This is our, kind of our final point, and it's a warning for us here this morning. It's a warning that I made last week, and we find it yet here again. Judas was that apostle who heard every message of Christ, who saw every miracle of Christ, and yet was unchanged. His heart was hardened. He was lost, religious, but lost. Here we find, and we pointed out last week, that anytime the word of God is opened, there's a dual work going on. There is a softening and a melting. There's also a hardening. There is a judicial hardening. Now you ask me when that begins or how that begins, I can't answer that. And that's not actually my full business to know. More often than not, you can see the results of it. It's one of those things that you can see the final conclusion of it or the results of it and we're left to conclude in a, in a sense of spiritual judgment that person is hardened beyond belief. I will tell you this that I don't think we see it as often as we think we do. I think God's grace and the power of his grace can save anyone. In one sense as long as there's life there's hope to pray and pray for our lost loved ones and pray that they will turn again to faith in Christ. God delights in making trophies of His grace. God delights in saving sinners, and so we're confident in that. But in the other sense, there's a scary, hardened truth here that, as, as Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, I believe it says, where the Holy Spirit says, my spirit, God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. There is a judicial hardening that happens at some point in the life of hearers who they're exposed to the truth. The scariest ones is this. Those who grow up in the life of the church from the earliest of ages. Those who grow up in the life of the church who go through every program, every class, every VBS, every whatever, and they reach some point in their adult years where they just say, I'm not going to adhere to the message. That's some of the scariest ones. The Bible doesn't tell us that they're the only ones. The Bible tells us that at any point in the hidden heart of man, If we respond in any way other than in faith and repentance, and yes, Lord, in obedience, and teach me, O God, that our hearts can become hardened. And we can conclude if our hearts continue to become hardened, it could be that we're not in the faith and we're not truly saved. If we never expose ourselves to the Word, never read the Word, one reason is why we here at Grace Church are unashamed to read the Word of God. As we understand, in one sense, we follow in obedience to Paul's command to Timothy and instructions for the church that the reading of Scripture is to be maintained in the church, in the worship of the church, until I come to give attendance to, to reading and exhortation and doctrine. But on a practical level, this isn't the main reason, but the exposure that some people have to God's Word here in our corporate assembly is some of the only exposure to God's work in a whole week's worth of time. Only goats will get upset at that. Only goats and people who are not saved get offended that God's word is read as long as it is or as much as it is. The saints of God, those who truly are in the faith, love God's word, accept God's word, want God's word, and desire more of God's word. But here in our text, Jesus says to those who resist the message, in an interesting phrase, in an economy of words, He simply gets to the verdict. And this is what he says. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the city that rejects your message of the kingdom. Whoa. Go back to Genesis. We see in the book of Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we see where God rains down fire and absolutely burns up Sodom and Gomorrah because it rejected the light of the Messiah. Listen, Sodom and Gomorrah heard that there was a God who had saved his people from Egypt. Rahab says, hey, listen, before they came to Jericho to the spies, she says, we have heard. We have heard of your God and his wondrous works and his mighty deeds. Don't think that Sodom and Gomorrah did not know of the one true God of Israel. And yet they rejected the message. And friends, when we look into Scripture, when God desires or when God decides to bring a judicial hardening or a judicial judgment, I just want to say something here. Be careful, and I promise I'm wrapping up this message. We don't get to determine what's fair and what's not fair. We don't get to determine whether it's fair or not that people even go to hell because of their unbelief. The Scripture simply says it. And we don't get to stand in judgment of God that says, God, was it fair Sodom and Gomorrah just burned up in a day? Listen, whether God brings judgment today or in the future, that's His business. Our business is to respond in repentance and faith to the message of the Word of God. And hear the warning, if you do not, there is a hell... And there are degrees of punishment in hell. And that's what we find in verse 15. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 6 than it will be for those, listen, who hear the gospel message today and say no. Who reject it. So that's a warning for us here this morning. The encouragement, the flip side is, the encouragement is is look to Jesus. The king has come. God sent his son the promised one, the Messiah, to come to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life for the approval of God. He passed the test for a holy God. John, 1 John chapter 1 tells us that God is light and in Him there is no sin at all. When he looked to his son Jesus, he saw a perfect sacrifice who lived the life of that we want to live at times, yet we're not capable of living. In the true sense of the word, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that none seek after God, none desire God. So we hide our true sin behind a religiosity, a form of good works which will damn our souls. Yet Jesus came and lived the perfect life for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the grave and rose three days later displaying power over death and the grave. He ascended, leaving his kingdom work to his apostles and to his disciples. And that's us today. We're not the apostles. The apostles were the foundation of the church, but we are his disciples. And the church, listen here, according to Ephesians chapter 4, the church is God's plan for the world. The local church. Churches like Grace Church. Or how God is working his kingdom today. My friend, if you will hear the message of Christ, if you're apart from Christ, you're lost and on your way to hell right now. You have no guarantee of life in the next five minutes. You have no guarantee that you'll live the next five minutes. Two Mondays ago, I buried a man that was younger than I was. That was sobering. Just to be reminded that young men die, none of us are guaranteed our next breath. None of us are guaranteed our next moments. If you will look to Jesus, if you will respond in repentance and faith, he will not cast you out. Run to Christ. But friend, the warning for you is this. If you scoff this message, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those who reject the message of the king. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... The message of the kingdom, the fuller message that we even have today, Lord, to go forth and to preach to all nations that, Father, you have come to teach them all things concerning the person and work of Christ, to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, what a joy it is to be a part of a church like Grace, where we desire to obey Christ to obey and fulfill your commission that you've given to us even here. Father, we're not perfect. When we come before your word, we see our sin. (laughs) We see, Lord, in your gracious mercy, your spirit shows us our iniquity, our trespasses, and as your children, Lord, we confess our sins. We come before the light of your presence asking that you would help us as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that we receive in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, our confidence comes in the salvation that we say we have, not that, Lord, we repented and believed when we were six or seven or 20 or whenever it was, but our confidence comes that your spirit is at work in us even at this very moment. We're confident in that profession of faith or that when we sin even today, your spirit convicts us and shows us our sin. And Lord, we come to you for mercy. And renewal and forgiveness. Father, thank you for your grace. Your grace is that which we do not deserve. And Father, yet you freely give it to us, not of works, lest any man should boast. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is apart from Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. There may be some here this morning who are wrestling with their faith with their trust in Christ. I pray that we could help them today. Lord, would you bring them to us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.